From my perspective, Mr. Secretary, I'm sorry. I believe you've been pleased. Whether we like it or not, Iran has developed experience with a nuclear fuel cycle. Our partners will not walk away with us, and we will have squandered the best chance we have to solve this problem through peaceful means. Hello, and welcome to the Global Inquirer. We're an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. Today I'm joined with Ari Gesemian, a double major in government and econ, and Gabriela Soriano, who majors in Middle Eastern studies with a concentration on politics and history. And the first question I want to ask is, how did we get from this? Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability. To this. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. So Ari, really, how did we get from, you know, a place of stability to becoming the axis of evil? So the stability that President Carter was talking about was very much the product of a 1953 coup d'etat, which was orchestrated by the British and American intelligence services. It's called Operation Ajax. It's known in the country as the, the coup of the 28th of Mordad. Uh, it occurred in the middle of August. Essentially, the democratically elected premier at the time, Mohammad Mossadegh, had nationalized Iranian oil crude production. Before that, it had been controlled by a concession that a previous Shah had granted to uh, a British oil company, which took the vast majority of the profits and left the Iranian people with very little. Um, Mossadegh changed it so that it was nationalized by the government. The British and Americans did not like this. It was seen as kind of a threat to not only their strategic interests, but then there were rumors flying around that Mossadegh was tied to the communist Tude party, so they needed to do something about it. Uh, President Truman did not want to do anything that would involve like a regime change, as we would call it now, but President Eisenhower was much more willing to go along with the uh, British plans. So in 1953, it was a very simple coup d'etat with mostly propaganda measures and a gang of thugs in Tehran that ended with the Shah taking a more authoritarian grip on power, which allowed for vast modernization programs, which a lot of people lauded, but also the curtailment of a lot of human rights and civil liberties that people enjoyed during the Mossadegh era. That brought us to 1979. So basically, prior to the 1979 revolution, the American government had excessive power over the Shah and over Iran, and this gave rise to uh, anti-American sentiment within the Iranian political fabric, and the Shah was considered an American puppet, and as such, the policies of Iran and mass opinion were not aligned, so the Shah advocated for many reforms and many stances that just did not correlate with the masses and their own political views. So many government opposition groups emerged, and Ayatollah Ruhollah Khamenei was particularly uh, defiant of the Shah. So the 1979 revolution came, and the Islamic Republic was established, and U.S.-Iranian relations quickly deteriorated. There's two different ways to look at the revolution. You can either view it as an Iranian revolution, 
one that was orchestrated by the masses who wished for more justice and less repressive policies. And you can look at it from an Islamic angle and see that it was actually orchestrated by the Ayatollah and in a bid to establish an Islamic Republic. The different strands that you're bringing up, there's like many in Iranian society who felt that the regime's reforms in the white revolution, the modernization programs in the 60s that really refashioned a lot of Iranian society from a more clerical or more traditional kind of cultural social setting to a much more moderate, if we want to use the gloss on it, or just westernized social culture. But there were a strand of against Americanism and from a more cultural standpoint. There were some that wanted, on the opposite end, a more democratic, republican style and didn't like that the U.S. was supporting whom they saw as a brutal dictator. There were other strands who wanted a more Iranian Iran, but from a nationalist angle, who wanted to throw off the yoke of imperial domination of Iran, which had been an issue since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so there were a lot of different things going on. I don't think we can say that there's one overarching narrative. Yeah, I agree. And if there's one thing that really unites the Iranian people is their desire to just be the masters of their own country. So whether they're secularist or Islamist, they just wanted to be, you know... Masters of their own fate. Yes. And how does the hostage crisis, uh, first, can you explain that a little bit? How does that play into these dual narratives? Right. So the hostage crisis, as we know, happened uh, or began on November the 4th, 1979, when the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line uh, stormed the gates of the U.S. Embassy downtown Tehran and took many of the occupants hostage for 444 days at the end of Jimmy Carter's first and only term, um, as it were. I think true to form in Iranian-American relations, it happened, it wasn't, didn't happen with the sanction of the government. It was a student group that was very loosely organized and with loose leadership or ties to the regime kind of took an action. And then it began to take the tacit encouragement and then support of the regime which then used it as a bargaining chip in later negotiations. But I think what's really interesting about it is that in the American media, it kind of made Jimmy Carter and the Americans, by extension, look weak that a group of students with knockoff Soviet AKs could take the great Satan of the West or the great power in the world at that time hostage and even actions that the Americans tried to take to invade and get them out couldn't do anything. It was ineffectual. It was still the ambassador's wife tying a ribbon around her tree, and we couldn't do anything about it. Oh, so those are, that's the foundation for the current sanctions that exist in Iran today. So that's what the nuclear deal is kind of built upon? Very good point. Yes and no. So there's many strands of sanctions, but the nuclear deal had different there were kind of two premises. There was the terrorism and human rights-based sanctions, which started with EO-12-170. And then there were additional nuclear sanctions, which the Obama administration had ramped up significantly beginning in 2010. And the nuclear deal only promised relief 
from the additional nuclear sanctions, but the sanctions starting um, from 79 were still to be left in place. And what are the specifics of these sanctions and how have they evolved over time and to our modern day? The word sanction is often mentioned in the media and it often has like the scary connotation, but what it actually means is just restrictions on banking activities, import of oil, uh, sh- restrictions on shipping and uh, sanctions also on specific Iranian individuals. So it really depends on the type of sanction. And essentially what we have to know is that in the 90s and the 2000s, there were a lot of acts that translated into sanctions. So, for example, in July 1996, Bill Clinton signed uh, an act called the Iran-Libya Sanctions uh, in an effort to circumvent Iran's nuclear program. And in 2000, again, he signed the Iran Proliferation Act, which imposes sanctions on individuals and companies involved with Iran's nuclear activities. So really, when it comes down to sanctions, the U.S. plays a big role in establishing and imposing sanctions on Iran. But it, do, it just doesn't stop there. There are also sanctions imposed by the Security Council. And even though Europe has tried to circumvent these sanctions, they're still pretty onerous and they, they're really ingrained in American foreign policy. So they were really hard to lift. In particular, during the Obama administration, there were talks of lifting these sanctions or at least negotiating with Iran, but it was very hard because these sanctions were pretty much universally binding. So you alluded a little bit to how these sanctions uh, came into play during the nuclear deal. Can you expand on that a little bit? Right. So the nuclear deal promised to remove the latest, if you'll call it, batch of sanctions, which had begun to be imposed in around 2010. These were additional U.S. sanctions uh, that targeted specific individuals and firms related to Iran's nuclear development sector as well as the financial system, which was very important. These were imposed by the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations Security Council. So they really had uh, extra teeth. The nuclear deal promised relief from this additional tranche of sanctions in exchange for a curtailment of Iran's nuclear program. Ari, for our listeners who might not have the greatest conception of what you know, the nuclear deal actually was, can you give us a bit of a background and lead us into where we are today? So the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the Iran deal as it's called, was reached between the E3 EU plus three, which is China, France, Germany, the Russian Federation, the UK, and the United States, with the high representative of the European Union for foreign affairs and security policy, as well as, of course, the Islamic Republic of Iran. It was done to ensure that Iran's nuclear program will remain uh, exclusively peaceful uh, for the foreseeable future, and it implemented all kinds of safeguards and an inspections regime unlike any other in order to verify compliance on all ends. What ended up happening with the nuclear deal? So it ended up initially as a success. Iran very quickly came into compliance, which was verified by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, shortly afterwards. And the European Union and UN Security Council removed uh, their respective sanctions, as did uh, the United States shortly thereafter. But on implementation day, the benefits did not immediately uh, accrue, as it were. Removal of 
U.S. Nuclear-specific sanctions on Iran did not bring the economic benefits that the Iranian people and regime had hoped for. I had the chance to talk to Dr. Nader Intisad, who is a professor of political science at the University of South Alabama, and he brought up a really interesting point about the early stages of the nuclear deal and how problematic they were, actually. Uh, so even during Obama's administration, you know, it was uh, almost extremely difficult even for the Obama administration to, to implement its obligations because of massive number of sanctions that Congress had placed on Iran. Uh, so it's, uh, in practical terms, really, it didn't do anything for the U.S., you know, staying in it or not staying in it. Even though a lot of people lauded the nuclear deal as a landmark achievement in international diplomacy. The United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not a comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. A lot of people were still very skeptical, and that included Donald Trump, and he often referred to the deal as a horrible one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. And in a way, he was trying to distance himself from his predecessor, so he was trying to, to depict himself as uh, the anti-Obama. Obama did this deal with Iran, it's a bad deal, we should just discard it. And that's what he did. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. So he pulled out of the nuclear deal. He withdrew from it and reimposed very heavy sanctions on Iran. So he has blacklisted many banks, the national airline, the Iranian national airline. And he basically, his goal is to reduce Iran's petroleum exports to like zero, and he, he also wants to minimize Iran's role in the Middle East. And for, for a lot of skeptics who say that, oh, this still lets Iran get a nuclear bomb, if that is one's view of news. And we will not allow a regime the chance death to America to gain access to the most deadly weapons on Earth while giving Iran plane loads of American currency. And a lot of it was unmarked cash flown on a U.S. airplane landing at the airport in Tehran. So it's got me curious. What are they afraid of? That's not really what happened. The nuclear deal provided a framework where the countries involved could verifiably see that Iranian nuclear enrichment was not at levels uh, that would be able to be used to make a bomb, it was strictly for peaceful purposes, and the quote-unquote cash that was flown to Iran was from 1978, when the Shah had prepaid for American military equipment. $400 million was held in a trust fund, and then $1.3 billion in accrued interest was returned to Iran. And because we can't pay them dollars, we had to use hard currency from the central banks of Switzerland and the Netherlands. So was cash flown in? Yes. Did Hillary Clinton and George Soros bring pallets of dollars to the Supreme Leader? No. Bit of a, bit of a deep cut there from Ari. Um, but I'm sure for those of you who are familiar with the story, you might find that a little funny. But now I want to take a closer look at the Trump administration, their views on the nuclear deal and how it's evolved. Obviously, Trump, you know, from the very start, 
took a very hard stance on this deal. And it seems as if that has only gotten more and more intense. The you know him appointing John Bolton as his national security advisor, and you know this this increasingly hostile rhetoric towards uh, Iran is extremely interesting. And Ari, I know we've been uh, kind of discussing a little bit in the studio here the role of the MEK. I would love for you to give listeners a little bit of background on the MEK and kind of where Trump administration headspace is right now. Right. So John Bolton is kind of the, uh, how could we say, one of the loudest proponents of a school of foreign policy that the kind of neoconservative interventionists of the second Bush administration uh, brought into power. A Democratic congressman from Texas summarized this by calling it the macho slogan that boys go to Baghdad, but real men go to Tehran. What they mean by this is that They want regime change in Iran, but much like U.S. policy towards Cuba in the Bay of Pigs, they don't really have uh, an organization that has popular support in Iran. And case in point is the Mujahideen Khalq, or the MEK. Um, It's a very cultish group. It was founded in the 70s in opposition to the Shah. During the Iran-Iraq War, with the support of Saddam Hussein, they fought against Iran. Um, and as such have essentially no popular support within Iran and are led by uh, the Rajavi family, one of whom is missing, um, seriously, and presumed dead, but the uh, official status is that he has disappeared. But he's still the leader of the MEK? Yes, he is the president of the MEK, but the day-to-day operations are led by his wife, Maryam Rajavi, uh, from a... 34-hectare compound uh, in rural Albania. Um, their yearly gatherings are often headlined by figures such as Rudy Giuliani and John Bolton, who in 2018 proclaimed, We here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. So essentially this is the anointed or the chosen government that John Bolton and ostensibly the Trump administration is going to insert into Iran. Okay, cool. All right, so we know it's going to happen. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but I just want to, again, kind of emphasize for our listeners just the sheer absurdity of this, because you have Venezuela as a good counterexample where the U.S. uh, and some other countries in our step have said, no, we acknowledge Juan Claudio as the legitimate president of Venezuela. There is an argument to be made for that. I'm not taking a position one way or the other saying anybody should. He was the constitutionally elected at some point national leader, speaker of the National Assembly. The MEK has no such support. They haven't lived in Iran for the past 45 years, and they were active belligerents against that nation in a war that has really shaped the cultural memory for much of the population who was born during or after that period. No, I mean, just in some of the research that I've done, Looking at these guys, it is quite astounding. Uh, Accused of many human rights violations by many groups, but also lauded by Amnesty International. They've been taken off and put on the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. They have a pretty messy history. Yeah, yeah, no, they they really do. Um, In the 70s, they were involved in a lot of terrorism. Uh, They've killed 
or cause to be killed U.S. citizens in Iran. For a long time, they've been trying to assassinate the first uh, elected president of the Islamic Republic, Abdulhassan Bani Saad, who has lived under uh, guard by French security. Um, since the revolution. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's good to see the U.S. going back to its roots uh, and trying to depose governments and insert ridiculous um, political group groups in their stead. Um, but now I want to shift back to Iran and how Iran sees itself in these nuclear dealings. Gabrielle, I know you talked to the professor a little bit about this. What? How does Iran see itself? What are the basis of its nuclear program? Is it purely for, you know, the attainment of a nuclear weapon or, you know, is there something else to it that we might be overlooking? So actually it's really interesting because Iran's nuclear identity is essentially grounded in its anti-nuclear stance. So the Ayatollah, for example, issued a fatwa, which is a legal decree issued by, you know, religious clergy in Islam, where he specifically stated that Iran would not seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. And so for the longest time, Iran's nuclear identity essentially revolved around this. And Iranian negotiators even tried to register this fatwa as an official document at the UN to emphasize Iran's adherence to nonproliferation. So it's interesting because the media doesn't really show that. When we think of Iran, we think of this aggressive state that will stop at nothing to get to acquire nuclear weapons. And I think the crafting of Iran's nuclear identity is very, very pragmatic in that way. It's very calculated. So, so it's stated in the preface of the JCPOA that Iran, again, reaffirms that it won't develop uh, and expand its nuclear activities. So I guess it's really interesting to see how there's this dissonance between Iranian rhetoric and American perception of Iran. With kind of the wealth of evidence that there is there, is it fair to say that these claims to not pursue nuclear proliferation are accurate or are they just a diplomatic tool to kind of provide some cover? Essentially both, honestly. The IAEA has repeatedly affirmed that Iran has stuck to the deal and, you know, I guess the IAEA is pretty legitimate. I don't think we can <laughs> question their, their findings, honestly. But at the same time, it is a diplomatic tool. Like, it's very strategic for them to assert that uh, their purposes and their ends are peaceful. Yeah. So, for example, when America pulled out of the Iran deal, that played right into their rhetoric. So the, the Ayatollah delivered a speech and said, see, you can't trust Americans. We tried to make an agreement with them. It failed, but we were peaceful. <laughs> so, like, yeah. Yes, I think what's also interesting about the, the fatwa and its use in a, in a political maneuver is it has kind of historical precedence also. During the, the Cold War, there was a, a petitioner treaty that the Soviet Union claimed uh, to have brought into effect that said... Soviet Union has banned the use of nuclear weapons and the people of the Soviet Union are signing a petition for all the peoples of the world to ban the use of nuclear weapons. But of course, the Soviets had the second largest nuclear stockpile in the world. Some argue that the use of the fatwa is for internal Iranian political purposes to argue that, no, we're not capitulating to the West. Rather, 
this is our policy, and if they want to do what they will with it, then let it be. It's also worth noting that the fatwa has more of an informal legal power within Iran. A similar fatwa called for the execution of Salman Rushdie by any Muslim anywhere in the world. So it's not like a decree by the cabinet. It's more of a an opinion. Yeah. So how does Iran's, you know, as a very strong regional actor, how does that play into U.S. perception of Iran and um, change U.S. policy? So essentially, the whole reason why Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal was to pressure Iran into hindering its activities in the Middle East, its military activities. And as such, it wanted to stop supporting paramilitary groups so, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo... Sorry, a noted opponent of nuance. Of course. <laughs> uh, ...said that Iran aimed to dominate five capitals in the Middle East, and this was a reference to the government seats of Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and, of course, Iran itself. So, the U.S. is essentially terrified of Iran. It has expressed its anxieties over Iranian hegemony in the Middle East, for example, uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon and the war in Syria. So the idea that tensions can easily escalate between Iran-backed paramilitary groups and, for example, U.S. allies such as Israel is very frightening. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's very interesting is that kind of American and Iranian threat perception really meet in Iran when it comes to the, the Middle East. Um, where kind of anything that America takes as a threat is the, if it, our interests in U.S. soft power is kind of deteriorated in the region. And we have that through kind of our proxies in the green zone in Baghdad and through Saudi Arabia um, and kind of that block of power. And Iran's interests have always been as a regional power, but that's always been more instrumental rather than an end in itself towards their own uh, stability and kind of domestic, if you will, kind of a real politique idea of their strategic security. For them, it's always been about preventing invasion, keeping Iran as a nation strong. And that's all we have for this week. If you liked the episode, be sure to smash that like button or comment on SoundCloud. All of our episodes are available on SoundCloud, Apple Music, and Spotify. And stay up to date with Global Inquirer on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tune in next week where our editor-in-chief, Emmy Lockwood, sits down with John Cipher, a former member of the CIA and resident cool guy, to discuss global trends and everything under the sun. Um, so that's all we have for you. Thanks for joining us. See you then. <laughs>